This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And now Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a music producer in Nashville, Tennessee, who was shut down by the local government. What does Disney, Hewlett-Packard, Apple, Microsoft, Dell, Amazon, Google, and Harley-Davidson all have in common? They all started at home. 69% of entrepreneurs start their businesses at home, and there are 38 million of them across the United States. It's generating big money of $427 billion per year. Take our guest Liz Shaw, for example, a music producer who moved to Nashville in 1991. And Lidge is actually short for Elijah, and uh, it's easy to remember because Lidge rhymes with fridge because I'm cool like that, which is terrible, but now you won't forget. <laughs> Lidge has recorded with performers like John Oates, Jack White, Wilco, Adele, and the Zac Brown Band. He calls his Grammy Award-winning studio the Toy Box Studio. And it all started when his uncle showed him a few chords on the guitar. You know, for me, music was um, something that was definitely part of my family growing up. It wasn't like I really came from a big musical family necessarily. You know, my mom and my dad, my mom was a, an artist, a painter, and my dad was an um, international banker and, and really loved history. But both of them really had an appreciation for music. And so, I, you know, I grew up in, um, for the first six years, five years of my life in Brooklyn, New York. So, of course, I was seeing and being influenced by a lot of music. Um, But it really was not something that I considered very seriously until just before my 18th birthday in high school. And that summer, I remember picking up a guitar at our summer house, and my uncle showed me my first three chords. He was like, well, here's the three chords you need to know, um, Lidge, if you want to you know, be able to play a song. Just know the E chord, the A chord, and the B7 chord, and, and then everything's good to go. And so I learned those chords, and I remember coming back after that summer trip. My dad actually bought me a guitar for my birthday, and it, so I'm, I was just like banging out these three chords I knew uh, all night in my, in my room in the house, and my stepdad would even come in and, you know, Lidge, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, you need to, you need to pipe down. So it was like a Sears and Roebuck classical guitar that was actually, I think it was broken on the front or something. It was a little bit beat up, but it still sounded great and was good enough for me. When I went off to college to go study architecture, I, you know, I heard some guitars being strummed from down the hallway in the dorm room, and I just went knocking on the, you know, knocking on my neighbor's door in the dorm room, and I was like, "Hey, man, you guys playing guitar? You know, I play guitar." <laughs> And and that sort of sparked friendships, and I saw people writing songs and having fun with it for the first time, and you know, it just took me another four or five years before I finally realized that this is what I really love to do and, and decided to go to school for it. I actually found a school called MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, and this is back in 1991. They had just built a wonderful recording program here. Um, it was like the big new building on campus. Now, you know, um, 30 years later almost, it's like the teeny building that's hard to find surrounded by much bigger buildings. <laughs> um, but I came down to Nashville, and I didn't know anything about 
music professionally. I didn't know, um, I didn't even know Nashville was really a music city, quote unquote. I knew, you know, I only learned later that it was like New York, uh, Los Angeles and Nashville was like the middle coast for making music. I just knew that there was a good school here and that making records was what I really wanted to do. So I came on down here and spent a couple of years in college and got a second bachelor's degree, this time a bachelor's of science in recording engineering. I did the recording program and then, you know, the logical next step was to get an internship at a studio. Um, and of course, I, uh, Murfreesboro, where the school is, is a little about, about half an hour south of Nashville. So I got an internship in a studio up here in Nashville and started coming up and, you know, seeing what it looked like to be in a professional studio. It was a beautiful place called Woodland Studios, which is still here in East Nashville and is now owned by uh, Gillian Welch and Dave Rollins. And they do um, some wonderful music. You know, they had done the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Why Art Thou? and come from that kind of old school appreciation of music. While I was doing my internship, I, uh, you know, saw a bunch of different records come in. Most of them were country records. You know, there was this new artist that came in called Keith Urban, and he came in to make a record. Um, Emmy Lou Harris came in to make a record. She did Wrecking Ball, and I met Daniel Lenoir in person, um, who's, you know, an incredible producer and, and has worked with U2 and Peter Gabriel and done all kinds of great records, Bob Dylan. And so I saw these great records happening, um, and then these two guys came in, and they were doing a really kind of a very different sounding record from one of the other studio rooms. Door was open, and I kept hearing all this cool music come out. And it was an artist named uh, Jill Sobule, who's still a brilliant songwriter and making great records today. Um, but they had this record with uh, a single that came out called I Kissed a Girl, which was actually the original version of that song a decade before Katy Perry had her big hit in the 2000s. Um, and I just remember I met, I met these guys that were producing the album and they would come out to the lounge and have coffee and I, I'd get a chance to meet them and they seemed real cool. And I finished my internship and then I was sort of like, you know, didn't know what I was going to do next. I ended up going by the record store one day and I see the, the finished album, Jill Sobule on the shelves and I listened to it and I was like, Oh my God, this, this record's brilliant. So I found out what the studio was and I actually called them up. Uh, just getting the number out of the yellow pages and they the producers answered the phone and invited me to come get my first job making records over there um, and this is a place called Alex the Great across town in Berry Hill from a passion of music to figuring out how to do that for a living from paying his internship dues to a paying job in the recording business Liz Shaw is about to live out his dream that is until the local government gets involved and we'll continue with Lidge Shaw's story. And what a story it is here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story shared with your friends. And follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Lyd Shaw, a record producer who, as you're about to hear, was shut down by his local government. Here again is Jesse Edwards with this unbelievable story from Nashville, Tennessee. When we left off, Liz had gone from a dreamer to a doer. After realizing his dream of being a music producer was in reach, he went back to school, went through an internship, and landed a paying gig in the industry. All at a time when analog was out and digital was in. And so I started to see a lot of, I guess, like sort of like the birth of home studios uh, in a way there. This was a commercial facility, but they were able to build a recording studio and make records with super affordable gear, the same kind of gear that was available for people who wanted to start home studios and, you know, DIY uh, musicians and artists that wanted to record their own records using tools like ADATs, which were these um, digital tape recorders that would use video cassettes to record the music on VHS cassettes. And they, so it made it really affordable to start making records and it's before computers were introduced. And so they built a studio with this and then they had, you know, an affordable mixer called a Mackie mixer. And I just really got excited about the kind of music and the kind of people and the kind of bands and artists that I was seeing come through the studio there. And simultaneously all through the rest of the nineties and into the two thousands, we had this, global introduction of the home studio as an alternative to, you know, the the big kind of expensive commercial studio. And there were tons of producers, engineers, bands, artists that were all just embracing this new technology with computers becoming more and more affordable and more powerful. Now you could buy, you know, a Macintosh computer from the store or a PC, set it up in a spare room in your house and plug in, you know, a cable to have a little interface, plug in a couple of mics, and bam, you've got what basically sounded pretty close to a professional recording studio right in your own home. So I saw all these people doing that and building studios around Nashville inside homes, and I thought, you know, this is really for me. I really love doing independent music. I love working with local artists. Um, You know, I still want to, you know, have a big award one day working with a major label artist as well but this seems like really the avenue to be able to focus on the art that i love about making music and not be totally just kind of drawn into the big commercial corporate machine for making music and so that really appealed to me and i remember probably around 97 or so I decided, 98 maybe, I decided that I wanted to have a five-year plan. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I want to have my own home recording studio. That's sort of my five-year goal. You know, have a home, have a studio, be able to wake up, grab your coffee in the morning, go straight into the studio and start making records. And that's exactly what Liz did. He bought a house in Nashville where he could build a professional soundproof studio. It had a a well-sealed basement. In fact, that was one of the first things I did is I called up a buddy of mine, um, uh, Ken Coomer, who played drums with Wilco at the time. And he came over and did me a huge favor. And I just said, dude, will you, will you do me a favor? I want to, I want to buy this house and I want to make sure that I can record in it, but I want to make sure I don't bother the neighbors. Will you just beat the crap out of your snare drum down in the basement? And I'm going to go walk around the house and see if I can hear it. And so he, he did that for me. Thank you, Ken. And, um, you know, I walked around and it was like, wow, that's 
This is perfect. Liz Shaw invested thousands of dollars to build his award-winning studio. And this isn't your friend's closet that was converted into a so-called podcast studio either. This studio kept his bills paid and his passion alive. And then... I've made records happily and successfully for a decade before the city sent me a letter in 2015 that said, you have to cease and desist being the Toy Box Studio and operating as a commercial studio in a residence. A man's livelihood shut down over a code violation. If you're zoned residential, you can get permission to work from home or have you know, a home occupancy permit, but you're not allowed to have a customer or a client come over to your house. And that applies to everybody who's doing anything in Nashville. If you're a nice little old lady in the neighborhood and you want to teach piano to the other kids in the neighborhood, that's not legal according to the Nashville um, Codes Ordinance. But the nightmare was just beginning for simply operating a successful home business in Nashville, Tennessee. Liz Shaw was now facing home inspections, warrants, and even censorship. So I got the cease and desist letter, and then it said I had, I think, 30 days to be in compliance. And so that was it was that 30 days of not sleeping, talking to people, um, figuring out what to do, having an interview in the local newspaper. And then I got a call a month later from the city codes inspector, and she said, you know, okay, are you ready to schedule an inspection? And I said, what do you mean schedule an inspection? Um, I got your letter. I'm trying to be in compliance, you know, help help clarify what that means and help me understand so that I can, can you know, be in compliance because this is my home. This is where I live. I have a home studio. This is what, that's what I do. And she said, well, we need to come do a walkthrough inspection and confirm that you've removed all recording equipment from the premises. And I was just like, whoa, slow down. You know, this is my home. This is where I live. I can't do that. You know, I can't just move on. I mean, what am I going to do? Uh, this is this is my home. And so she um, said, well, let me check. I'll check with the, the supervisor. And she called back a little bit later. And this is the actual audio of the chilling voicemail that the county official left. Hi, this is with the Coast Department. I just checked with our zoning administrator, and he did say you don't have to remove your equipment. But if any, if there are any further complaints about uh, the use of this property as a recording studio for anyone other than you, and that does include your podcast, then we will go uh, straight to a warrant and obtain a court order. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, I don't want somebody knocking on my door and throwing me in handcuffs in front of my daughter just because I'm trying to make records. So what do you do in a situation like that? Thousands of dollars, a decade of work, regular income, realized dreams, gone. How do you react? First thing you do is freak out. Um, I remember just being in a state of shock. I don't think I slept for a week. I didn't even know if I wanted to tell anybody yet because I was thinking... You know, it's a devastating thing to be told to stop working when the work you do is the very thing that feeds you and feeds your family and pays your bills and keeps a roof over your head. Uh, but I knew I needed to be able to have support of friends and family. So, you know, I finally started talking to a couple of friends about it. Um, so I did an interview in the Tennessean newspaper, which I believe got front page um, right around Thanksgiving that year. 
And that just seemed to generate quite a lot of interest, um, you know, and quite a lot of passionate defense of this whole issue. Keith Diggs from the Institute of Justice reached out to me, and we had a phone call and began talking about the issue. And, you know, he really expressed interest in um, coming to my aid and, and, and defending me and, you know, maybe talking about ways that we could do something about this case, uh, because it really was at the core of the Institute for Justice's cause and mission statement. And it was shortly after that, too, that uh, Braden Busek uh, reached out to me from the Beacon Center here in Nashville. And same thing, that was also at the core of their mission statement, is to find people and help defend um, property rights, economic liberties, and, you know, constitutional liberties for people right here in Tennessee. You know, I couldn't even afford to do anything about this. It just it seemed astronomical to try and defend myself um, and hire a lawyer for something that just seemed so uh, hard to figure out in the first place. After talking to the Institute for Justice and then talking to the Beacon Center, I thought, well, if you guys are really good at what you do and you're really good at what you do and we all want a, the same end result, why don't we just all work together? So that um, sort of sparked an idea for us to just meet simultaneously, which we did, and everybody seemed to be on the same page, and um, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I feel very fortunate that such a bad thing could happen to me, but in the end, such a good thing could happen that all of a sudden I end up with this, you know, incredible legal team coming to my my aid to try and help out on this issue, um, and I like to refer to them now as the League of Justice. Thanks to the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, Liz Shaw stands a fighting chance of getting his livelihood back but he still has a long way to go in the courts. And when we continue, we'll hear more of Lyd Shaw's story, but he's got the Institute for Justice on his side, a band of legal litigators that, my goodness, defend property rights and property interests all over this country. Ordinary folks facing, well, let's just say extraordinary measures by their local, state, and national governments. When we continue more of Liz Shaw's story, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and we conclude now the story of Lyd Shaw, a music producer who was forced to close his small business by the local government in Nashville, Tennessee. And I just keep thinking about getting a call like that, a message left on your phone machine, no less. It's just so cold. Here again is Jesse Edwards. From a young musician with a dream to a professional producer at his successful home recording studio, which won a Grammy Award, Liz Shaw was shut down by his county government for operating a business in a residential zone. After being threatened with home inspections, arrest warrants, and having his equipment confiscated, Liz went to the press and found overwhelming support, not only from his community, but by legal groups like the Institute for Justice and the Beacon Center, who were helping him and other home-based business owners in the Nashville area 
get back to what they do for a living. It really feels so good to have that kind of support and have a team that's on my side. And more importantly, you know, one of the things that they really do um, that's helped me out tremendously is educate me and help me understand how, um, you know, I'm in a position of importance for, 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 you know, fighting this battle and how my needs are relevant and my rights as a citizen, as a homeowner, um, as a as a single dad, as a parent, those are all legitimate and real rights that really do need to be defended, um, you know, pretty pretty strongly, and are worth worth defending because I think it's very easy for us at times to just kind of you know cower down under under the oppression of being told you can't do something and just assume. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us assume that, that we must be doing something wrong if somebody told us that we're doing something wrong, and that may not be the case. And now it's time to fight back. But there are certain loopholes Lige and his legal team must jump through to proceed in this nightmarishly boring court. Nashville does allow a specific plan rezoning, SP rezoning of residential properties. It has allowed it, and it still does allow it. And so we realized we're going to need to go through that process first and apply for an SP rezoning before we can actually, you know, go to the next level. And in other words, that's the first thing to try. So we went through that whole process throughout the entire year of 2017, which involved uh, finding actually a local land use attorney and filed for rezoning. That had to go in front of the planning commission for approval. Um it got disapproved. Then, you know, we went through this whole process and, and, and I think there were a few different times we had to go up and to city codes for my rezoning application to be heard. And on the final one, it was a very long city council meeting and they spent quite a long time deliberating over some um, short-term rental issues, basically the, the Airbnb topic here. And then they finally put mine up for vote when everybody was just dying to go home and it voted so fast, and they um, there were 14 yeses from city council members, um, and they had really talked about this stuff um, quite at length, and everybody seemed to agree that at the core of what I was trying to do, it was okay and should be allowed, but they just couldn't quite agree on how the city should, you know, what the process was for allowing it. And so then 20 city council members voted no, Therefore, it didn't pass. It needs, I think, a two-thirds majority for an SP rezoning. Hitting that brick wall of bureaucracy, Lige, the Institute for Justice, and the Beacon Center filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville with a co-plaintiff. My co-plaintiff is Pat Rayner, who is a retired hairstylist. She's been doing hair for clients for her whole life and their lives. And she just wants to be able to continue to support herself in her retirement because she can't stop working. She's already 69 years old. And she just wanted to be able to continue to cut hair for those clients out of her home. And she also got shut down by the city. Um, so we teamed up with the law firms and filed a lawsuit against the city of Nashville defending our constitutional right to be able to continue working from our home and support ourselves and support our family and pay our bills and you know, make an honest living. We're basing our entire lawsuit on defending our constitutional right under the Tennessee Constitution 
to be able to make an honest living from our homes and that specifically there's a discrimination going on by the city of Nashville, by Davidson County, by Metro in saying we're going to allow some people to have home businesses and see clients like home daycares, neighborhood daycares. We already allow um, short-term rentals. We, you know, people can put up Airbnbs. In fact, you know, on, on a limited scale now, um, people are able to put up Airbnbs and have short-term rental property even if they don't live there as a landlord. And um, there are properties that are rezoned, have been traditionally, uh, were just again this year for historical rezoning, which basically says, you know, we're going to recognize this property as being of historical significance. And with that, it means that you can operate as a commercial business out of this location and you can have customers and clients come over and, you know, do things like have events or have an operating business and that sort of thing. Um, all of which sound like per perfectly reasonable uh, use cases for allowing a home business. You know, obviously we need daycares. Um, people do need to be able to have a place to sleep in a town that's affordable. And I think that people should be able to make a room or make their house available for somebody to rent on a short-term basis if it's a positive thing. And, of course, we, wanna, we want to upkeep historical locations and properties all across the city because that's how you keep the, the heart and the spirit of the city. But at the same time, it's an infringement and a discrimination uh, against us, it's an infringement of our constitutional right to be able to also do that. You know, everybody who wants to be able to support themselves from their home, particularly home studios, because there's lots all over Nashville, um, hairstylists like like Pat's, uh, like like her home, that should be allowed as well. And it's not fair if the city says, hey, you can't do it. Everybody else can, but you can't do it. Liz Shaw is continuing his fight in the courts as we speak. And we will follow up once a judge has reached a conclusion as to whether or not he can be allowed to conduct business in the privacy of his own home. Despite all the drama, he hasn't lost his love for Nashville. He's staying and fighting for everyone else who wants to run their own business from their house. When I finished school and I was, you know, first thinking about where I wanted to live, my first thought was I'm going to go back to St. Louis where my friends are and my last band was. And, you know, you know that's where I want to go make records. And it was that process of seeing people who were really serious and professional about making music and the art of recording music here that made me realize, oh, wait a minute, Nashville's a great place to be. And, you know, it's this wonderful place that has a real, like, it's it's a real growing metropolis, but it's always had kind of a small town feel in a lot of ways. I mean, it's also a place where you could still find a home that you could afford and maybe you've got some green grass and a yard and, you know, maybe you can make music in your, your home studio and it's not going to bother anybody because, for one, I mean, my studio's soundproofed, so literally not going to bother anybody. But also, on you know, at, at the core of being in Music City is that people who live here love music, so therefore they just, you know, they want to hear more of it, not less of it. To visit Liz Shaw's Toy Box Studio online, check out all that he does at thetoyboxstudio.com. You can hear the music he mixes, check out his podcast, and send him some words of encouragement. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that, Jesse. And that story hits close to home. My sister and her husband worked a home studio in northern New Jersey. 
and have a home studio in Los Angeles, California, and they do all of their business from their home. So many of us, so many more of us are doing the same. And I love that you heard a musician say, it's my constitutional right to be able to make an honest living in my home. Indeed it is. And thanks to IJ, Institute for Justice, what a group, if you care to, give them money because they're helping fight, well, fight laws that just make no sense. IJ.org is how you can help. Lyd Shaw's story, a remarkable freedom story, property rights story, and rule of law story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we sent our interns on a tour of the American South, and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live, just south of Memphis. And one of the places they went specializes in the history of Southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern, with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. My name is Liz Williams, and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Menz defined cuisine, and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes, everyone feels they know about, and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine and people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate and that are identified with them. But I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever. And people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same. And it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group, Italian, Chinese, Indian, French. Each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here, rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together, is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, the French were developing the restaurant. 
and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked and then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you had the Spanish who came later, but now you've got the settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food. Plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. And so that gives you another level of spices. So the Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet. They're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have here in Louisiana, you have Germans. They were bringing a sausage making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds and uh, they were being taken out of prison. And so they were like pickpockets and people in debtor's prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals. They were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds. But they also didn't have any skill. I mean, if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage making traditions. New Orleans is an old city. And by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans. And of course, they're bringing pasta. The interesting thing is, of course, tomatoes were from uh, the Americas. 
tomato went back with Columbus, was adopted by Southern Italy, totally transformed the cuisine of Southern Italy, and then they developed the, uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes, so we weren't canning tomatoes, wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy, and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, Things like that, which is a southern thing, is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs, and that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War, when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans and now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate, you know, because it's all mixed together. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city. And so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're going to creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is going to tell you a restaurant. Everyone is going to say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking. It's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. Even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now you know the protocol for riding, riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best po'boy is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter, everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation. 
that is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. And you listen to people talk about food on the bus, and you listen to people talk about food everywhere, and people want to know, you know, do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo, or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside? All the little nuances of it. It's like everybody wants to know. And nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know. Everybody knows. And great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my bride's, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Nolans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends. And anywhere you can, talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it. And so, too, does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by. ...and their dealings with... Oh, yeah, my glory, that's a beautiful love story. I remember... While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that no doubt had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, You're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends? 
more straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy? Or do you want drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, he could pick any college he wanted to attend and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers little excitement, punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home. is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places living within a community where 30% of the student body is international, 100% are former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But, like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, I got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? It was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me and without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in a doorway, getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria? His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt. And though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school. He's not going off to war. I knew too that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. 
He looked into his own incipient life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it. And when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at OurAmericanNetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does. What a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. And we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files. A young man, a boy, having a dream in his head, a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret and making that next important move to go to military school. Let's pick up where we last left off. As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them. But I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now, I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families, like ours, create barriers and boundaries and walls trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go, but at some point, we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost, living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties, he needs many attributes to get him through, and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list. Resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock. Planning for the unexpected, adapting to fluid situations, and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training. Our natural instinct at home 
is to nurture our children. It is our duty as parents, but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self-sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaving. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept. Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100 degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there as well as his capabilities. Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here and other than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, Dad. I told all my children when they turn 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, and the front door. And they're going to go out of one of those three doors, for sure. And Tommy, he's the last to go. Afterwards, my wife discussed the conversation with me, and she asked what I thought was driving his decision. My answer to her question was that he was bored. A high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world. Church for teenagers every Sunday, boy, that gets routine real fast. Faith eventually fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War I, you never taught us anything really useful, like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving and rappel out of a helicopter, run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night. The questions that he could not provide answers for, he told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. 
I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature, Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew. It introduces its hero, Petruchio, who, while riding into Padua, is greeted by a friend from his hometown, who asks, Oh, hail Petruchio, what winds blow thee to Padua? He answers, Such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home, where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother, now she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son, Bobby, had left for college a year earlier, and she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom. But his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children feel is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she can make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss them, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land and each obstacle that's overcome becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple of years. I think my wife will insist upon it. And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written by Bob McClellan. Go to the McClellan Files at Our American Network to hear all of his work. And by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, MyPillow, and that's MyPillow.com to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whose. And now I'm actually, we got names on them. So that can't happen anymore. Hopefully. We'll see. That's MyPillow.com. MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories or pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McFarland Files.
And we continue with our American stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. And we particularly love to tell stories about music, because we can't imagine doing the show without it. And moreover, we can't imagine life without music. It's that moment where we all just shut up and either dance or listen. And for a moment, at least, everyone in the room, everyone in the room is on the same page. And this next story, well, it's a rock and roll fantasy story about the band Boston and one particular dreamer. And by the way, the rock and roll band Boston sold over 75 million albums with classic hits like More Than a Feeling, Peace of Mind, Rock and Roll Band, Smokin', and Don't Look Back. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of a Home Depot employee and his favorite rock and roll band. When our favorite songs are played, we all do the same thing. We turn it up and we sing along. But the idea of living a rock and roll fantasy and being the lead singer in your favorite band is only played out on the big screen and on television, right? For everyone who ever dreamed of being a rock star, meet Tommy DiCarlo. He sings every night to tens of thousands of screaming fans, but only months before his gig as the lead singer of the legendary rock band Boston, 42-year-old Tommy wore the orange apron and worked on the floor at Home Depot in Charlotte, North Carolina, where his singing was confined to the shower and karaoke bars. Here's DiCarlo. I remember doing karaoke at a bowling alley. There was maybe 30 or 40 people that, that most of them were bowling. They weren't even listening to karaoke. So how did Tommy's life go from this well, let us know if we can help you, okay? To this. Like most kids who came of age in the late 70s, Tommy DiCarlo was struck by Boston in the summer of 76 when the band released the momentous debut album, which perfectly packaged progressive rock with melodic pop. Back when I was around 12 or 13, a friend of mine bought the debut and lent it to me, and I never gave it back, DiCarlo says. I fell in love with the music, and especially Brad Delp's vocals. Boston never toured as much as its 70s counterparts. So DiCarlo didn't get to see Boston until the mid-90s. My first show, he says, I was able to meet Brad Delp. I wasn't among 30 or 40 people at a meet and greet, but after the show, I hung around by the buses and yelled Brad's name. And we talked for a minute. I'm really thankful I got to meet him. You got to tell him how much he loved Boston. But he was so wrapped up in the moment, he didn't even remember to have Delp sign the CD he was holding in his hand. Here's Tommy describing what life was like before living out his rock and roll fantasy. Um, pretty average. I uh, worked a uh, 40-hour week job at the Home Depot and, and still am. I'm on a leave of absence there right now. 
DiCarlo's gig began with an unfortunate incident back on March 9th, 2007, when Boston's lead singer Brad Delp took his own life at age 55, leaving a note clipped to his shirt that said, I am a lonely soul. The band posted on its website, We've just lost the nicest guy in rock and roll. Here's DiCarlo. A lot of the fans, including myself, felt terrible about that. You know, it was, it was, it was a pretty rough time for, for a lot of folks. And um, I decided to go ahead and uh, write a tribute song in memory of Brad. And it was a very short piece, just a couple minutes long. But I didn't really know how to go about sharing that with the other fans, which is what I really wanted to do. So uh, I went ahead and um, my daughter, my daughter Talia, told me, Hey, Dad, why don't you try MySpace? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll try it. Well, I got a message from another fan. That's the beauty of uh, MySpace and the, the friends you could make through the, uh, through the MySpace uh, page. Um, a, a, a Boston fan had uh, sent me an email saying, I love your tribute song. Uh, would you consider sending it to the band? I have a, an old email address. And I'm like... Uh, okay, sure, I'll, I'll try it. It's funny because uh, back when I was a young teenager, I had a lot of folks, uh, a lot of friends would tell me that I had a very similar voice to the lead singer of Boston. They didn't know his name was Brad Delt back then, but, and I says, yeah, you know, uh, thanks, that was a great compliment. And over the years, uh, I would sing a lot of the Boston music and still get those same compliments. So when that person sent me that email and told me, why don't you try sending your stuff over to, to, to the Boston camp, I was like, ah, you know, may maybe. Here's that cover of Peace of Mind DiCarlo posted on MySpace. Tommy's cover eventually reached the founder of the band, MIT mastermind and guitar geek, Tom Scholes. Here's Scholes with the story. Actually, through my wife, Kim, uh, I, w I was walking through the uh, kitchen and she was listening to something on her uh, computer that was uh, up on the internet. Um, and I was, uh, and she said, uh, what do you think of this? And I said, well, um, I've never heard that uh, recording of Brad before, what show is that from? And she said, it's not Brad. And I said, uh, oh yes, that's Brad. And she said, no, this is not Brad. And uh, I didn't realize till I put it up on um, some big speakers and listened to the background music that it was in fact not Boston. Um, and it was uh, some sort of a karaoke track. And then I realized this wasn't Brad, but it sounded just exactly like him, and I, I know every nuance of Brad's voice, worked with him for 35 years. So I was, uh, I was shocked, but yes, I did, the moment I heard that, start to think, all right, maybe there is another future for Boston. And uh, uh, we, uh, we proceeded uh, cautiously, but quickly, 
and um, invited him to Boston to uh, make an appearance with us on stage at a tribute show last summer for Brad. So what was it like for this fan of Boston to pick up the phone and hear it was Tom Scholes on the other end? I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. It was, uh, it's, it's almost hard to put into words, really. I just could not believe it. It was, it was, I was shocked and I was excited. It was, it was just an amazing, it was an amazing day, believe me. DiCarlo's wife of 21 years was his number one groupie, and his two teenagers saw their dad as the real American Idol. For Tommy, it was tough to leave his job at Home Depot in Charlotte. He liked his co-workers and rather enjoyed helping people find hardware. And he doesn't rule out going back to it at some point. In terms of lifestyle, not much has changed. DiCarlo says, We live in the same house, and the best part of my day is my kids and wife. And I get a lot of support from the people at the store. For the time being, though, he's just enjoying the ride. You know, just like, uh, what, the Boston song, I'm just taking my time, just moving along. Moving along, you'll forget about me after I've been gone. And I take what I find, I don't want no more. It's just outside of your front door. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org, that's F-E-E.org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943, more than likely you would have been forced indoctrinated and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see you were never lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. 
They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and loved the mountains as children. The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an Alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish Italian friends. They formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes, similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. 
Through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. To Pino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as a driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. It could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. The kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Lairs. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24th, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive 
an important high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border where he could safely be interrogated for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lehrs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Lairs to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II. But like many of that greatest generation, the experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org. Great job, as always, on this, Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 